Well, we want to uh, celebrate and welcome, I guess, baby Nora, who we haven't officially welcomed into the church family, so to speak, and baby Gianna, who just arrived recently, and we're thankful um, for what the Lord is doing there. We also want to keep Aaron and Britt in prayer as they have a big day coming up really soon. Um, Also, I wanted to draw your attention to uh, a conference that Hillside is putting on, I believe, sometime in May. It's about Christ in the workplace, and they're going to have Chris Hamilton, who is the chair elder from Grace Community Church, come and uh, participate in that um, conference or seminar. It's on a Saturday. We'll get that posted on our website, and I think it uh, is one that speaks to where we live and what we do, bringing the good news of our risen Lord into our place of work. And so that will be an edifying time. Well, this morning, uh, Eric was gracious enough to lead us through Psalm 67 and through those uh, heart-lifting songs of praise taken from it. And I would hope that that would be our prayer for our church, especially in light of what we walked through last week on Resurrection Uh, Sunday, just the reminder that Christ is indeed alive and He is present in our lives. That prayer, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us so that His way may be known on earth and His saving power among all the nations. That's One of the reasons why the Lord has left us here. That's why He's present with us. That's why we have the opportunity to celebrate. It's not for ourselves, but we have this opportunity and this gift to share the light, to be a lighthouse to the nations, to celebrate the power and glory and goodness and beauty of who Jesus is and the privilege that we get each Sunday to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And how do we get a chance to do that? Well, we do it through His Word and through the proclamation of the gospel and through the presence of His Spirit in each one of you. Paul talks about what is the hope of glory. The hope of glory is Christ in you, that He is alive. And as we interact with children of God, we get an opportunity or a foretaste to have a glimpse of the goodness and grace of Christ who comes and transforms sinners like us and does what we do not deserve or cannot do for ourselves and transforms us into His likeness. We become what we worship. And when Christ is our King and He's present, it is a beautiful transformation. And this is where Matthew is taking us in his gospel. This morning we return to the God-breathed words of Matthew's gospel, where Matthew is showing us who Jesus is according to God's word. And by showing us who Jesus is according to God's word, Matthew is also showing us what a true disciple is and what the church is according to God's Word. Of course, we've been here before. There are just many misconceptions of what a disciple is, and there are many misconceptions within the church about what the church is, and that leads to much disappointment as we live out these counterfeit gospels and these counterfeit discipleship and this counterfeit church. Well, Matthew brings us back to the one true source of truth, God's Word, to show us and remind us who Jesus is. Those distorted views of discipleship in the church, what they reflect is we have a distorted view of who Jesus is. Because if we're 
disciples, if we are his followers, if we are united with him, well, we will look like him. So the church goes as our understanding and appreciation of who Jesus is goes. And we can tell what someone's appreciation of God is and what someone's appreciation of who Jesus is by how they live out his word. It's a reflection. And so I tell my sons on a regular basis, there are plenty of pastors who preach the word of God well, but if they are not obeying or living God's words, stay as far away from them as you possibly can. And the same goes for a church. It's not preaching the word of God, it's living the word of God. That's what Jesus came to do. That's what he did. And that's what he died on the cross for you and I. What we celebrated last week, the victory that he has shown us, Christ in you, is a victory over sin that empowers you not just to talk the word of God, but to walk it and to live it and to do so by faith and to do so victoriously. And so just by way of review, I want to walk you through those first four chapters of Matthew just to ring your bell a little bit and remind you where we've been to get us ready to focus on Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17, since it's been a little time since we've been there. And uh, AV team, if you would be so kind as to put up my first slide, that would be a great help. You'll recall that in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew begins by showing us that according to God's word, who is Jesus? Jesus is God's promised new beginning for the world. God's promised new beginning, God's new genesis for the world. He is the Christ. He is the son of David, the son of Judah and Tamar, the son of Abraham. And when we see that, well, who is the church and what are disciples? The church is God's new beginning and his new creation for the world, starting over again. The world is broken, and it's dark, and it's broken by sin. Well, what is God's fulfillment of his promise to bring a new beginning? It is the local church. It is you. It is the disciples. That is where God's new beginning starts, one soul at a time. And who are disciples? Well, they are servants of the one true king. He is their Lord. And then Matthew goes on to show us in Matthew chapter 1 that according to God's word, Jesus is nothing less than Emmanuel, which means God with us, and that God has come as promised to save his people from their sins. And what does that mean disciples are? Disciples are people who are sinners, and disciples and followers of Jesus are people who Christ dwells with and has saved them and separated them and delivered them from their sins. So if we are still living in our sins, brothers and sisters, and we're still walking in the darkness, excuse me for a minute here, sorry, I need something to lean on. And when it wobbles, I wobble too. Um, When we're remaining in the dark and we're walking in the dark and we're walking in our sins, brothers and sisters, whether we're a pastor or a seminary student, we're not a disciple and we're not a child of God because children of God and disciples are saints who Christ has come and dwells with and light does not dwell with darkness. The Lord makes that very clear. We don't live these defeated, discouraged lives of repetitive penance because Christ has come and he has delivered us. Are we perfect? No. But is there a movement? 
in the direction of increasing movement towards the light and moving away from the darkness, absolutely. And then as we come to Matthew chapter 2 through 4, Matthew shows us through trials and through testing and through temptation, according to God's word, that Jesus is the promised Savior and King, and He is the faithful Son of God. Disciples are faithful children of the one true God. Disciples are not people who avoid trials, testing, and temptation. But instead, they are those who, by faith in God, walk through them. And through a righteousness not their own, but one that is found in Christ, they are able to, by God's grace, not their own power and strength, they are able to endure and wait for the Lord to bring the fullness of His promises and His care for His children. That means sometimes that there are sleepless nights. That means that there are times that there is sickness and illness. That means that there are times when we don't get what maybe we think we deserve or is right or fair in the short term. But it does mean that we trust in God's promises, that He knows what's best for us. And through those trials and testing, He is preparing us for His glory and His promised land. And Jesus shows us that is who he is. And this brings us finally to Matthew 4, verse 12, our text for this morning. And to the beginning, 4, verse 12, brings us to the beginning after those trials and tests and temptation. Well, what the Lord is preparing Jesus, his faithful son, for is the beginning of his gospel ministry, where he will begin to preach and teach and bring the gospel throughout the region of the Galilee. And as he does so, he proclaims a gospel and a promise of salvation that is going to take both Jesus and his disciples all the way to the cross and all the way to the resurrection. And this is what lays the foundation for what is known as the church, the ecclesia. And it's in this way the Lord God shows us that disciples and the church we are the children of the cross. We are the children of the resurrection. We are the children of the gospel. And we saw that last week in the life of the Apostle Paul. His life mirrors the life of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, even in his trials before foreign kings. The pattern of his life is a reflection of the gospel. He is a child of the gospel. The gospel has transformed every aspect of his life, both in the cross and also in the resurrection. And this is the good news that he proclaims to emperors and kings and to foreign nations and foreign peoples. And similarly, brothers and sisters, the true church and true disciples, your lives are going to reflect the gospel because it's Christ in you doing a mighty work of transformation. And this is what we've been studying in Lagos recently as we finish up the book of Titus. The book of Titus, Paul's writing to Titus to a young church in Crete, and he's explaining to them every aspect of your life, your home life, your work life, every aspect of your life is a reflection of the gospel and is ordered and transformed by the gospel so that you in turn can take the good news, not just in word only, not as hypocrites, but in your life 
to share the life and light of Jesus Christ to the world. And this is hopefully, God willing, what we are at Lighthouse Bible Church San Jose. And it's in Matthew 4, 12 through 17, the focus for this morning. Matthew reminds us where all of this begins, that all of this begins with the Word of God, which shows us that the true light of the world is Jesus. It's something, brothers and sisters, that we know it's in our name, and yet we can so easily forget. Jesus is the true light of the world, and the light that he gives shines one way and one way alone. It shines through his gospel, his good news, a gospel that brings us to the cross before it brings us to the resurrection. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, and we will read verses 12 through 17. Matthew 4, verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, this is Jesus, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. In my first year in college, living in the dorms, there were any number of unofficial experiments taking place on campus. And one of the most favored and frequent was an experimentation with light and darkness. How long could someone go in the dark? And the way this experiment was carried forth is members of my floor would go to the dormitory showers and restrooms, and while someone was showering or people were showering or they were using the facilities, they just reached their hand in and turn off the light and leave. And then people would wait in the hall to see how long it would take for someone without their clothes or wet or wherever they were to fix themselves up and grope their way and find the light and make it out. And there were varying frequencies and times on that. Some people just waited inside until someone came half an hour or however long later to turn the light on. And others scrambled out. But was, what was obvious to all and what's obvious to everybody, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, is that over time you cannot live without the light. You put anything in darkness, be it a plant, a child, or an animal, and you leave the lights off for an extended period of time, and eventually life will go away, and that creature will ultimately die. There is no life without light. Death is inevitable. And according to God's Word and what we just read, and what God says repeatedly from Genesis through Revelation is the light we all so desperately need and that we cannot live without is God's Son, Jesus Christ. You can get away with it maybe for a little while, but you're running on fumes. 
Without Christ, we are lost. We cannot find our way. We cannot see in front of us. And eventually, we will all die. And the good news of Matthew 4, 12 through 17 is that in and through Jesus, God gives us the light of His Spirit and His Word. This is what God has done in mercy and grace to a world that is broken and blind and living and dwelling in darkness, no matter how many artificial lights we turn on. And this brings us to our first point for this morning, God's faithful Son restores the light of God's Spirit and His Word. God's faithful Son restores the light of God's Spirit and Word. But there's an addition to this, to those who desire it. To those who desire it. In Genesis 1, the universe begins by God's Spirit and His Word leading the way. And it is through the presence of God's Spirit, and it is through God's Word being spoken, let there be light, and then there was light, that light is created and comes into a place where there is only darkness. And as we come to Matthew 4, it is God's Spirit and His Word, once again, that leads Jesus into a lifeless place called the wilderness. And it is God's Spirit and Word that leads Jesus and leads all children of God through the wilderness, through the trials and testing and temptation in the midst of a lifeless and harsh place that is filled only with thistles and thorns. And ultimately, as Matthew shows us, it is God's Spirit and His Word that brings Jesus to a region known as the Galil or the Galilee region. And verse 12, this is in response to the news of John the Baptist's arrest by a man named Herod Antipas or Herod the Tetrarch. He is one of three sons of Herod the Great, who is given a portion of Herod the Great's kingdom to rule on behalf of Rome. And he earns the name the Tetrarch because his region or his district is one quarter of Herod the Great's kingdom as it gets divided up. And according to Matthew 14, John the Baptist is arrested by Herod Antipas for having the boldness to point out that even kings are subject to God's Word. Even kings need to repent. Even kings, according to God's Word, have someone to answer to for what they do in private. And of course, many of you are familiar with this. As you go to Matthew 14, what we see is John the Baptist, God forbid that a prophet call out someone's sin publicly. God forbid, that's in poor taste as Asians, that we speak of someone's shortcomings in a public place. That is offensive, that is wrong to our shame and to our pride. But John the Baptist calls out publicly Herod Antipas. Why does he do so? Because Herod Antipas has divorced his wife and he is living and he is married to his sister-in-law. 
And so John the Baptist calls out repeatedly and publicly calls Herod to repentance, making clear that this relationship that he has is an immoral relationship. And we talked about this last week. Any relationship or intimacy that is contrary to the will and word of God is an offense to God and God will judge it. And because his relationship is not right with God, it's a reflection that he as a king is not right with God and his kingdom is not right with God and is subject to the judgment and the justice of God. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. What a man sows, he will reap. And you can look up on Wikipedia how Herod Antipas ends and you will see that the judgment of God comes upon him. But in the short term, Herod Antipas... What does he do in response to this call to repentance? And it's worth noting that these Hebrew kings of the Hasmonean and Idumean background, well, part of the way in which they maintained their legitimacy was by showing up to the temple and acting as the heads of the Jewish religion. They typically appointed the high priests who ruled over the Sanhedrin, and they grew up learning the scriptures and being in the temple because that was what was required of a Hebrew king. They were religious people. So what does Herod Antipas do when John the Baptist calls out for the nation as a whole to repent and turn to God and says, we must honor the word of the Lord and God for who he is? Well, it's fine to tell everybody else about their sins, but it's different when someone tells us about our sin. Is it not true? And so what he does is what we all do and what we do in America. We just turn the sound off. And so he arrests John the Baptist. John the Baptist, you're the problem, not me. And you're the troublemaker, not me. And then he puts John the Baptist in prison. He incarcerates him. He doesn't want to kill him lest there's a public outcry and uprising among John the Baptist's followers who believe he is a prophet, but he keeps him in a quiet place. He turns the volume off. And it is, Matthew explains to us in verse 12, when Jesus hears this, that he withdraws into Galilee in the north. Could I have my Next slide, please. Hopefully you can see this. This is the strip of what is known as the promised land. And as you see, it's divided up into 12 regions. And these are the regions that Joshua divided up among the 12 tribes, the descendants of the 12 sons of Jacob in Joshua 19. And you'll see in the south, the big blue area is the Dead Sea filled with salt, which you can float in, the area where Sodom and Gomorrah was. And God rained down sulfur and destroyed all the life in that area as a judgment so that we can see today that God keeps his word. And from that little blue area, there's a line that goes all the way up to a tiny blue area. That line is the River Jordan, and it runs from the Dead Sea all the way up to the Lake of Galilee or the Sea of Galilee, the small freshwater body that is in the north. Well, Jesus starts in Judea in the area where John the Baptist is baptizing people in the southern portion of the Jordan River. But upon hearing that John the Baptist is incarcerated by Herod Antipas, he withdraws. And first he goes back to Nazareth. And then after Nazareth, we are told he moves on and settles 
in a city on the northwest shore of the sea or lake of Galilee called Capernaum. And Capernaum is a prosperous fishing and trade town with about 10 to 12,000 people. And it boasts a Roman garrison and a tax office that is taken care of by a tax collector named Levi, or also known as Matthew. And it was a town that sat on the border of two ancient Jewish tribal territories, Zebulun and Naphtali, that trace their roots back to Joshua 19 when God divides up the promised land among those 12 tribes. Now, I'm not doing this so you can win a game in Bible trivia. I hope, as you will see as we move on and come to the prophecies of Isaiah, you're going to see how all of this fits together. But this region that Jesus moves to, when he moves from Judea in the south, in the southern kingdom, close to Jerusalem, the religious epicenter and the political epicenter of Palestine. And he moves to the north, to the boonies, okay, to this prosperous area, which is the breadbasket of Palestine. It is an area that is financially prosperous and doing well but is considered by all to be unholy. It is frowned upon, it's looked down upon. So as you walk through the Gospels, you will see that all the religious elite, all the Bible scholars, anybody who is a mover and shaker in Second Temple Judaism, they look down on people from Galilee. Oh, you're a Galilean. You have that Galilean accent. You can't be a good Jew if you come from Galilee. Well, why? Well, from the very beginning, from Joshua onwards, those tribes that are in the north, they are on the border of all the foreign nations. And they are also in an area that is financially prosperous. And over time, on a consistent basis, what they do is what we call in America today, syncretism. Who knows what that means? Nobody's going to be bold enough to raise. It's when you mix and match. You don't totally go over to the other side and say, okay, I'm going to walk away from the faith. I'm still going to worship, but I'm going to worship in a place that I like, and if there are a few other gods here, that's okay, and if, contrary to what God says, we do business with these foreign nations, that's okay, and if my daughters marry guys who are from that area who are idolaters, well, that's okay, we're still going to go to the temple, we're still going to worship, we're still going to be good. It's a mix and match where you get a little bit of God and a little bit of the Word of God and a little bit of everything else in the area, and everybody's happy and everybody's good because we're tolerant, we're nice people, it rules well, no harm, no foul, we can have it both ways. And that pretty well is a summation of American Christianity for the most part today. Well, this is what this area was notorious for. Well, why does Jesus go and settle in this area? Is it because of fear? When you first read that and you hear that John the Baptist is arrested and Jesus withdraws and moves, the initial assumption that people make, well, Jesus is scared. He doesn't want to get arrested like John the Baptist. He has a ministry to get on with, so he's going to continue and he's going to clear out. But as you read the text and you go through the Gospels, this is very clearly not Jesus' motivation. When you look at Luke 4.14, Luke says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that leads him there. And Matthew explains in verse 14 why the Holy Spirit leads Jesus to the Galilee region. 
He says, so that, verse 14, what was spoken by, or literally what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, might be fulfilled. Jesus is doing this because the Spirit is leading him, and because God's Word has promised that Jesus would come to this region and this area. And we've heard these words repeatedly before. So that the word that was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. We've heard this in Matthew 1.23 with the virgin birth. We've heard these same words spoken in Matthew 2.14 when the baby Jesus is taken to Egypt by Joseph and Mary. We've heard these words in Matthew 2.23 when Jesus is taken back to Nazareth. And it's in this way Matthew is showing us, and as you go through and read that phrase, so that the words spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, they're all the way through the gospel. Matthew was showing us that nothing in Jesus' life, from his conception all the way through the cross and resurrection, happens by accident or whim. Every step that Jesus is taking, he is taking through the Spirit of God and through the Word of God. He is doing so to faithfully fulfill his Father's word. This is why he has come. He is doing so to bring to completion his Father's promised plan of salvation. Jesus doesn't simply preach God's word. He lives God's word, and he does so by the power of the Spirit. This is the submission. This is the sacrifice. This is the love of a faithful child of God who has come to do his Father's will, not his way, but his Father's way. And brothers and sisters, this is the test and the calling of all true children of God. This is the test and calling of what a true church is. This is what we've read through in Ephesians 4 and 5 and Galatians 5, where we're called to not resist the Spirit, but to submit to the Spirit. And we're to be filled with God's word through the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And we're not to guard a heart of bitterness or resentment and resist the spirit. Instead, we are to forgive and be gracious and to walk in the light. Why are we to do this? To walk in the spirit. So, brothers and sisters, so that each one of us might be fulfilling God's word and bringing his gospel to a dark place. It's God's purpose for his son. It's God's purpose for each one of us. And Matthew was laying out and showing us, look, the reason Jesus is coming to a dark place, the reason he's coming to a liberal place, the reason he's coming to a syncretistic place that the rest of the religious Jews look down on is because of God's love and mercy and compassion for sinners who are lost in darkness. What is the promise and plan and word of God? that Jesus has come to live and fulfill. Well, Matthew explains it in verse 14 and 15. According to the word of God, spoken through the prophet Isaiah, and in Isaiah 9, Jesus is the light of God's spirit and his word. And he's come to bring that light, very specifically, not the light of good times, not the light of a mega church, not the light of, hey, we're all doing it right, the light of God's Spirit and His Word into a world of darkness. But there's two sides to this. And Matthew 12 and Matthew 14 highlights this. And you're going to see this all the way through. When that light is rejected, 
when that light is dismissed, God in judgment takes that light and he moves it and takes it to a people who have not seen that light in mercy and grace. It's a recurrent theme from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so we see Contextually, one of the reasons Jesus withdraws when John the Baptist is incarcerated is in the region of Judea, close to Jerusalem, where the Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders have come. God's prophet and the forerunner of the Messiah comes and proclaims, repent, 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 the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn from your sinful ways. Come back to a God who forgives and will wash you. And ultimately, what is the response of the leadership? Nah, I don't think so. And what is the response of the king? When it gets too close to home, it's fine for the poor people, but when it comes to me, let's lock you up in jail. And so judgment comes, I believe, in the region of Judea and Jerusalem and the leadership of the church. And the light of God's gospel and his goodness and his grace, when people do not listen or they resist, is removed. And God in mercy and grace takes that light to a place that other religious people look down on, a place of darkness, a place that has been dismissed, a place of weakness and frailty and brokenness, a place that is neglected and cast away by the religious elite. And he says, here, there's a wedding banquet, and I'm going to invite you to the wedding banquet. And this brings us to our second point for this morning. That Jesus is the promised light of God's salvation. Jesus is the promised light of God's salvation. The words that Matthew quotes from are taken from Isaiah chapter 9. And that name, Isaiah, means Yahweh is salvation. Not you, not myself. Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Now, that name Isaiah, in the Hebrew, you're going to see it's similar. It's a variation on the name Joshua. God is, or Yahweh is salvation, which is, in Greek, translated as Jesus. And the prophet who bears this name served the Lord from 739 to 686 B.C. And like all prophets of the Lord, like John the Baptist, he was filled by the Lord's Spirit. And he proclaimed the word of the Lord. And he was appointed and anointed by the Lord to speak his word. And those prophets came and spoke God's word, especially at times where the kings and the people had hardened their hearts against the light of God's salvation. And how had they hardened their hearts and how had they gone astray? Well, typically it went throughout that they would look for salvation and life in places other than God. They still showed up to the temple, but they made deals with the surrounding nations. They wanted to be like the surrounding nations. They wanted the wealth of the surrounding nations. They did not separate from the worship or the merchandise or the goods or the life of the surrounding nations because they wanted to be like them. And they wanted for their lives a king, a king who was like the nations, idolatrous kings with all their swagger. Essentially, they were looking to the world for salvation. And the message of the prophets is that Yahweh is who he says he is. 
He is holy. He keeps his word. And he is the only true God and only true king. And only Yahweh can truly save. Only Yahweh can give life. Only Yahweh who created the world can bring light into darkness. And the sad history of God's people as you read through the Old Testament, and it's the same today. It's whatever. That's nice for a minute or for a moment, but over time we want what everybody else has on Instagram and Facebook and all the other places. And so what does God do in his mercy and grace? He sends to them a prophet. He sends to them a prophet whose name is Yahweh is salvation. End of story. There's nothing subtle in it. And brothers and sisters, when we're in darkness, we don't need subtlety. We need a hammer over our head. And God does so mercifully. And like the Apostle John, Isaiah reminds God's people that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. He's the holy creator. He is the ultimate source of life and light. Without him and without his word, there is only darkness. Spiritual darkness and physical darkness. The lights go out when God is gone. And so if you read through Isaiah, this is your homework. Read through Isaiah 1 through 9. The Lord God through Isaiah reminds his Old Testament people how in love he made them his sons. I adopted you. I raised you as sons. And yet, what did you do? You refused to believe in me. You refused to trust in me. You chose the salvation and the word of the nations rather than my salvation and my word. And the testimony is the lives you lead. The lives you lead bear no resemblance to me and my character. And in verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4, he talks about them abandoning, despising, and turning away from the light choosing to dwell in darkness or to walk in darkness. Become, and they become what they worship. So he refers to them in verse 10 of chapter 1 as Sodom and Gomorrah. Brothers and sisters, you don't need the Bible for this, but it's the truth from the Bible. You will become what you worship. Do you worship your career? You will become like your career. I was advised when I was in medical school by the man who led my Bible study, he graciously told me. He said, Mark, what, re- what residency should I choose? He said, just look at the men who lead the departments and ask yourself, head of neurosurgery, head of ophthalmology, head of plastic surgery, and just ask yourself, do you want to be like them 10 to 20 years from now? Because if this is your path, that's what you will become and that's what your family will most likely look like. We become what we worship. Our careers, our cars, our homes, our friends, our relatives. We're finding that out with young ladies in Facebook. We become what we worship. And so in Isaiah 5, the Lord God points out what the nation has become. They can talk about God and quote scripture all they want, but their lives are dark. And it's a reflection that privately, when no one's looking, what they've been worshiping all the time is the darkness of this world. If you have your Bibles, have a look at verse 20, I believe, of chapter 1. Oh, excuse me, chapter 5, Isaiah 5, Isaiah 5, verse 20. Isaiah summarizes this, the darkness of the people. 
He says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. They don't need to be told. They know better than everybody else. They know better than the Word of God. And what is the darkness? Everything in their lives is backwards. It's reversed. What is truly light, they say, is dark. What is truly good, they say, is evil. What is truly sweet, get that away from me. Brothers and sisters, this is America. And this is the church in America. We know better. And we've reversed everything and everything is backwards. Don't talk to me about my sin. Don't say it out loud. That is unloving and unkind. And so we've reversed it. That what is loving is considered unloving and what is unloving, just letting someone die in their sin, that is tolerance, that is virtue, that is what's good. He goes on to talk about substance abuse in verse 22. And he goes on in verse 23 to talk about corruption and injustice and briberies, and he points out that all of these things, the social injustice, the systemic injustice, what we call systemic racism, all of these things, well, he's pointing out, look, this is where it comes from. The heart of the matter is you've turned away from God, the only source of light and, and, and life. And as a result, in chapter 6, he points out, you become blind, you become deaf, and you become dumb. Because from the beginning, you pretend privately when no one sees that God does not exist, he does not see, and his word does not matter. So what does Isaiah do? He warns them. They need to repent. They need to turn. They need to trust in the Lord, in his salvation and his mercy. And God offers them in chapter 1, come to me and I'll forgive you. Though your sins are as scarlet, I will wash you and make you as white as snow. If you will come to me and allow me to be your king and your savior. But they choose otherwise, don't they? And what they ultimately choose is we would rather be ruled by darkness than light. And so as is always the case, the Lord says to his people, paraphrasing, if you want to be ruled by darkness, I will give you darkness. So in 734 to 732 B.C., as promised by God, Tiglath-Pileser, the ruler of Assyria, invades. And where does he invade? Well, he starts in the area that is compromised first, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And he takes northern Israel, and he takes the region of the Galilee, which is a prosperous area, and he takes the Jews in that area, and he removes them and takes them prisoners, and he puts his own people in that area. And so we see the story of Adam and Eve being repeated. If you don't want me to be your king, if you don't want my light, I'm going to cast you out of the garden, and I'm going to remove the light, and I'm going to allow you to have what you want. You can rule yourselves, and darkness can rule over you. And so then we see in verses 8, chapter 8, 22 of Isaiah, it says, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Well, this is what happens in the north of Israel first and then eventually works its way down to the south. 
And yet the Lord God, who is holy and just, he is also merciful and gracious. And he keeps his promise, and he will not abandon his promise of salvation to Abraham and Abraham's descendants, to those who repent and trust in him. He promises to them that he will do what they cannot do for themselves. And so where is his salvation going to begin? Well, when we get to Isaiah 9, he points out, my salvation is going to begin where my judgment began, in the darkest place. And I'm going to show you that sin and death and your sin and death is not greater than my love and my mercy and grace. And you will know, because it's not because of you, the holiest, the best, and the brightest, that salvation is from the Lord. You're going to see, as I save the worst among you, that salvation and life is a gift from the Lord. Now, what's worth noting is that this prophecy that is made by Isaiah that leads up to Isaiah 9 that Matthew quotes, this is a prophecy. Isaiah is a prophet to who? He's a prophet to the nation of Judah in the southern kingdom, not Israel in the north. And so he's pointing out Judah, you think you're so religious. You look down on those Israelites in the north. You turn your noses up on them. You think you're okay because you're more religious. You have the temple. You offer a few more sacrifices. No, the Lord God's letting you know as the Lord has done to them, he's going to do to you and he's going to show you where salvation starts. It's not with the hoity-toity, self-righteous, religious people in the south close to the temple. It's going to be the lost because you've rejected the light of God's word. And this brings us to our final point for this morning. The light of God's salvation shines through the gospel. The light of God's salvation shines through the gospel. Have a look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Isaiah 9, verse 1. And we're going to read this and we're going to segue into Matthew 4.17. Isaiah 9.1, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell dwelt in a land of deep darkness. On them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, who's Isaiah talking about? Well, Matthew points out he's talking about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that God keeps his promise. And this is why Jesus, led by the Spirit and the Word, leaves Judea 
and he comes to Galilee to an area that has been in darkness under the judgment of God. But he's come to bring light. And that light that he brings, very specifically, he shows how he brings that light. He brings it through the gospel. He brings it through the word of the Lord. Matthew 4.17 says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Brothers and sisters, how often do we think of repentance as light and life and the beginning of joy and celebration? But this is the connection Matthew's making in Isaiah 9 and the gospel. And we struggle with this, brothers and sisters, because typically we think of repentance in our sinful hearts as penance. What do I need to do to make things right? What do I need to do to fix my sin? What do I need to do to change things? And it's a distorted view and a blind view that reverses everything. As we come to this and see the beauty and goodness of the light that comes to a dark place, it begins with this command to repent. And as we go through the Gospels, you're going to see that there are three components of this repentance, a repentance that Jesus commands, a repentance that is led by the Spirit and the Word of God. Can I have my next slide, please? The repentance that Jesus is commanding is not a work of man. It is entirely a gift of God. It's something that we receive and participate in by faith in Him, in His Word, in His rule, in His work, in His salvation, not ours. It's a non-optional command, and it is a command that requires a Spirit-led conviction and confession. A Spirit-led conviction and confession. This is the idea of submitting and agreeing to what God says about us, that we're not right with God, that we are living in darkness, that the proof and pattern of our lives is not good, even if nobody outside sees it. The testimony of our lives is one where God is not present. It does not look like God. And that shows that in our hearts, we are not worshiping God's rule and God in our life, we're worshiping ourselves. Well, it begins with biblical confession and conviction. A conviction, hey, I'm not right before God. I'm wrong. It's like Isaiah says in Isaiah 6, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. As he comes into the presence of God. The confession and conviction, I've offended God, not just by what I do, but who I am. I am an offense to God. God is not king of my life. I am a blasphemer and I am a fraud. And this biblical confession and conviction that comes from the Spirit of God, it leads to a spirit-led brokenheartedness. A spirit-led brokenheartedness where our hearts are broken over who we are and what we've done, not to ourselves, but to God. And this is the distinction between godly sorrow and ungodly sorrow. Godly sorrow that's led by the Spirit. There's a grieve of what I've done to others. What have I done to the Lord? What have I done to my wife? What have I done to my children? What have I done to the church? It's not about me. It's about the damage I've done to everybody else. It's how my sin has defiled everybody else. He saw this with Judah when he repents. Versus ungodly or worldly sorrow, I'm just upset that I got caught. I'm just upset that this is making my life hard. 
Can't we just get on with it? Fix our sin? Say a few words? Talk to a Catholic priest? Go to an A meeting? And can't we just move on? I'm grieved, and you hear this so often, that I was so foolish to do A, B, C, D, and E. Or if I'd just gone back, would have, should have, could have. It's the idea, it's all about me. And yet in Psalm 51, we see this brokenheartedness with David, where he says, against you, O Lord, against you only have I sinned. I've been sinful from my, from my mother's womb onwards. Well, what Christ is calling for is this spirit-led conviction and confession that ultimately leads to this brokenheartedness that comes from God and that ultimately leads to a biblical turning and transformation where the heart is changed, the mind is changed, the will is changed, where we hate and renounce and forsake anything and everything that separates us from God. Hate, renounce, rebuke, and separate and get as far away from possible as possible from anything that separates me from the light and love of God. And instead, it loves and affirms and embraces the lordship and the rule of a king who is good. Dr. Mayhew MacArthur write, Indeed, repentance and sin are mutually exclusive, for one's sinful deeds will not permit one to return to God. If you want to continue and hang on to the rule of your life and your darkness and your sin, if you want to hang on to your rightness, that you are right before God and everybody else is wrong, you can't come to the Lord. You've got to choose one or the other. And this is what Jesus says to the rich young ruler. Yeah, you've done all these great things, but can you leave your wealth because you worship that more than God? No, we can't. And so he goes away sorrowful, not sorrowful with a godly story that I'm wrong before God and I've offended him. It's a sorrow that, wow, I can't have it both ways. Dr. Mayhew and MacArthur go on and, and say, a repentant individual seeks the Lord and his favor. A repentant individual trembles at God's goodness and desires to be reconciled to God. A repentant individual desires to put away idolatrous worship. Desires to put away. It's not, oh, I got to give this up. I got to give up my electronic media. I got to give up this TV show. I've got to give up these friends. No, it's like, I want to get as far away from good riddance in my life because all of those things stop me from being with the greatest sweetness and treasure and goodness the light and life of the gospel, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A repentant individual desires to worship God alone, regardless of the cost. And brothers and sisters, isn't this what we see with the Apostle Paul as he stands and he's lost everything, and yet he is joyful and he's filled with life. And we see the difference between Zacchaeus, who's willing to give away all his wealth and probably became a bishop in the church in Caesarea, in comparison to the rich young ruler who goes away and in private hangs on to his sin and his idolatry. And the proof of genuine repentance is obedience and the fruit of righteousness. Love, joy, peace, self-control, all the fruits of the Spirit that demonstrate that your life is ruled by God and not yourself. Well, how is this possible, brothers and sisters? Well, Matthew shows us there's only one way. It's Christ's presence in your 
life. It's Jesus. So the question comes, well, I've repented. I've asked God for forgiveness. I agreed that my sin is terrible. Why isn't my life changed? Well, brothers and sisters, so often we say those words, but Matthew was showing us through all of this, through the words of Isaiah, that the proof and the power to overcome sin comes not through our strength, but through Christ's presence in our lives. And what we confuse so often is we think, okay, Jesus has come into the darkness. He's come to the pigsty to call us out. And we fail to see that when Jesus calls us to repent, he calls us to leave that pigsty. He doesn't call us to set up a church in that pigsty. We're to come home to the Father's home and be clothed in righteousness and to be brought into the home. We fail to see that when Christ loves us and calls us, he calls us to be with him. And what we fail to see is that gospel call to repentance is a call that brings us to the king and the cross of God's word. It's where Christ is the ruler and he brings us to the cross. And that's why it says the good news is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's God's gift to you that he's offering his rule over your life so that you no longer have to rule yourself in darkness. And so that's the million-dollar question, brothers and sisters. Repentance really is that great offer. But are we willing to let go of our kingship and our crown? And are we willing to walk to the cross with Jesus as all the disciples did and every true child of God will? If we will, brothers and sisters, what Isaiah shows us and what Matthew shows us and what the disciples and the Apostle Paul shows us is that's where life begins and a joy and a peace and a celebration of harvest and a goodness and a grace that is victory over sin that changes and transforms us, but not only us, but this world of darkness around us. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have called us to repentance. But Lord, let us tremble before you and let us not turn out or run from the light, lest you withdraw that light and leave us to ourselves and what we desire, the darkness. Instead, Lord Jesus, give us new hearts, as only you can do. What we need is more of you and less of ourselves. And would we, in turn, become the lights of the world that bring the good news of your gospel to a world that so desperately needs you. In your name we pray, amen.